0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. And as we continue our way through the Gospel, we are now at chapter 5. Wonderful portion of Scripture as each verse is, but a glorious passage nonetheless, that we begin this morning as we consider Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 6, 1 through 6. Here now, the very word of God written for you and for me today. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, beloved, calling, teaching, preaching, and healing— These are the things that Matthew tells us that Jesus did and demonstrated were important in the beginning of his earthly ministry, as he began to proclaim his kingdom and to make it known. Indeed, Jesus has the power, the authority, and the right to do such things, for he is the king of this eternal kingdom. Jesus is the king who is also the the ultimate gatherer and shepherd of his people. He is the ultimate and great preacher. He is the grand teacher and the compassionate healer. None compare to him. And so as he came to Capernaum, after John the Baptist was thrown in prison, it was good and necessary for Jesus to continue preaching the message that John preached, wasn't it? The message that all need to hear. The, the message that the Jews and others apart from Christ didn't like, but, but needed to hear. The call for repentance that John and Jesus preached is one that clearly communicated the need for heart change and life transformation, the need to be reconciled with and in submission to the living God. The Jews who heard them undoubtedly thought that they were right with God. But in reality, their hearts were far from him. The reality that they needed to face was that there was a great separation between them and God because of their sin against him. And indeed, they were under his wrath. His winnowing fan would thresh the floor. And if they did not turn to Christ in true true repentance and faith, they would be burned in unquenchable fire. And therefore, they needed to turn from their sin and and unto Christ for mercy and salvation. For the great light of Christ, Matthew told us, dawned in the darkness to both Jews and Gentiles. And if you recall, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee in chapter 4, we see that he saw Peter and Andrew and and called them to leave their, their lucrative fishing business and follow him. He called them along with James and John in order to teach them and to train them. Jesus called them to learn from him, to to be his students, promising them that they would be skilled in fishing of a different kind, becoming fishers of men, casting the, the net of the gospel and bringing men and women and boys and girls into the kingdom according to the will of God. And so, as Jesus and his teaching and preaching and healing ministry gained a lot of attention in the region and and the crowds grew in, in great and greater number, many were blessed to hear about the nature and purpose of Christ's kingdom. They were blessed to hear about the good news that it was near, they were blessed to see the signs that it had come. And so, as we come to chapter 5, we find Jesus beginning the first of five discourses that Matthew records, that he preached and taught. And this discourse being what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is focused on the ethics of the kingdom. And we find that he begins with what are called the Beatitudes. Quite appropriately. This morning, let's consider the first four as we look at Blessed are the poor in spirit in verses one through three, those who mourn in verse four, the meek in verse five, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse six. But as we prepare to dive into the details of the first beatitude, Notice what Jesus did before he proclaimed the Beatitudes. Before he engaged and and opened his mouth in this this sermon, what happened? Look at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Some important things to observe here, beloved. Jesus was about to preach a wonderful sermon. He was about to give a deep exposition of the law, a deep exposition about the kingdom and what is true of the members in it. But he didn't take his disciples to the place that the Jews would teach and impart instruction. Jesus didn't take them to the synagogue and and sit on Moses' seat where other authoritative teachers of the law sat to teach. No, Christ went up on a mountain. It's interesting that in Exodus chapter 19, when God came to give the moral law to Moses, what did he do? He descended. In fact, it was no quiet descent, was it? He descended, he he came down on Mount Sinai in storm and fire. And he spoke In thunder and lightning. Here, what do we see true with Jesus? He went up on a mountain and spoke to his disciples in a gentle but authoritative voice. When God descended on Sinai, the people were commanded to stay back and to keep their distance. Here, Jesus, the very Son of God, come to his people, invited them to draw near to him. Again, the Son of God, the Messiah, had come to his people to save and to teach and to shepherd them. Indeed, take note that mountains in Scripture are places where divine instruction is given by God to his people. And we see this foretold by Isaiah regarding Mount Sinai and the temple on it in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, as he spoke to Judah and Jerusalem, saying this, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And what will he do there? Most wonderfully, he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Ah, the grand anticipation! of the students of God, the grand anticipations of the disciples of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord, for we know what he is going to do. We will worship him, but he will also teach us. And having learned and having been taught, we shall walk in his ways. It's beautiful. Further, when Jesus went up on the mountain, what did he do? See first that he sat down. That's meaningful. He sat down, which was customary for teachers to do. And then his disciples came to him, Matthew said. They came to sit at the feet of Christ and to learn. The teacher was seated and ready to give his divine lesson. And we see that in verse 2, don't we? Look there. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Uh, Every word of God is wonderful, isn't it? Wonderfully, Jesus opened his mouth to give them an exposition of what he preached in calling for repentance in light of the kingdom. And notice that he didn't open his mouth to engage in chit-chat. He didn't open his mouth to, to give other pleasantries No, Jesus opened his mouth to feed his disciples, to teach them. They needed to be taught for their own benefit. They needed to be taught as they would soon be sent to proclaim Christ and make him known. They truly needed to grow in the knowledge of the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. The same is true for us today, isn't it, beloved? Through Christ, we have access to God, not only to speak to him in prayer, but to hear from him, to hear from his spoken word and writing to us in the scriptures. From the very mouth of God, by his spirit, we too need to sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught by him. And we see this teaching in this passage, don't we? It's, it's wise for us to pay attention. To every word of God, it's wise to us to pay attention as we see the mouth of Christ open and what he is about to say. We too need to, re- excuse me, need to remember Jesus' answer to Satan's temptation in Matthew 4, verse 4. When he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, the opening of the mouth is important, for here comes the most holy and perfect word of the Lord. Jesus was going to teach them wonderful words of life, which would include much about life in the kingdom. And where did Jesus begin? He began with the Beatitudes. And why is this beginning portion of Jesus' sermon called the Beatitudes? Well in Latin, Beatitudes means blessed. And we see that word repeated over and over again. So it's a big portion and message in what he was about to say. And this is exactly where he started. He started teaching his disciples by answering the question, what is true of repentant citizens of my kingdom? As well as pronouncing divine blessing upon them. Look at verse 3. He begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this first beatitude, beloved, Jesus is spotlighting those who humbly recognize their great spiritual need and dependence on Him alone rather than their own goodness. And this was quite shocking to His audience, wasn't it? He called His disciples. They had open minds and ears by the work of the Spirit to hear their Lord. But the crowds around them They had walked and lived and thought according to a different agenda for a long time. But indeed, they recognize and those who are poor in spirit recognize their complete spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ. The complete depravity of their own heart. Beloved, it is in Jesus that these are truly blessed. That we are truly blessed. Indeed, blessed are those who humbly flee to the free grace of God. Who flee to Jesus Christ and his righteousness in true faith. And we know this to be true. Because of God's promises to those who are humble and contrite. As we see the Lord's words in Isaiah 57 verse 13. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who, who has what? Who has a contrite and, and humble heart to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Beloved, we need to remember that true happiness Does't lie in worldly possessions, but being in the favor of God. Jesus says, God's blessing, His, his approval, is upon the poor in spirit, and he, he graciously looks upon them. We see that again in James chapter four, verse six. And so what marvelous blessing does Christ say belong to the contrite one? In Matthew 5. As God draws us bankrupt beggars to Himself, He he blesses us and he, He fills us with every good thing. In Christ, we are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. But there's more. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, more qualities, more pieces to understand about the people of God and the kingdom of God. Those indeed who have repented for the kingdom of God is at hand. Those who have turned to Christ are blessed by the living God. And indeed we see this wonderful blessing, even as he says that they mourn. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, why... Why is God's favor towards those who mourn? I don't see mourning as a good thing. It comes in times of great sadness. What is Jesus teaching us here? Well, Jesus points us to sorrow that isn't the sorrow of the world, but a godly mourning over our sins against God which leads to repentance and zeal for the Lord. Again, this message drives home to his disciples. This message drives home, driven home to us here today. Remember the Apostle Paul's words to the saints in Corinth regarding true repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-11, through 11, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Note verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. The the message of Jesus here being proclaimed again to Corinth through the Apostle Paul. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, Paul said, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. As the people of God repent and turn to Christ, we have so much really everything that is from the Lord, that is spirit wrought within our hearts, a wonderful zeal for the Lord, the one whom we've hated, we now love and embrace. We seek him, we desire him. We have a zeal for him and for his service and for his glory, for his kingdom's sake. Can you now see the blessing of godly sorrow? Can you see why Jesus would say, blessed are those who mourn? Do you mourn for your sins today? Can you see the evidence of divine saving grace who who sincerely do so? Who sincerely mourn over sin? Again, What blessing do they have? The soothing comfort of Christ. Isn't that what we need, beloved? Isn't that what we desire when we are mourning? When we are sincerely mourning, when we're not just saying sorry and that's so surface. But when we mourn with godly sorrow, when we truly mourn over our sin because we know the violation that it is against the living and eternal God, We find the comfort of Christ in the gospel. And this is what the people who were hearing about the kingdom needed to know. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus truly has, does, and will wipe away all of our tears. Christ's Spirit-anointed preaching here announces that God will, will heal the broken-hearted sinner and replace his sorrow with abundant joy in Jesus. And, and we find once again, through the prophet Isaiah, this promise to be very clear. This time in Isaiah 61, the first three verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. We, we considered this verse a few weeks previous when we were considering the anointing of Christ for his ministry. But here, the greater context in these words again. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, opening, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort, notice, all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. Remember that that is the practice and was the practice of mourning, to be covered in sackcloth and ashes. But here is what is the promise I will give you beauty for ashes. I will give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And notice why. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. All of this, all of the comfort, all of the soothing, All of the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately for his glory and his people are blessed. Christ goes on in verse 5 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now it's common today, beloved, when we read or hear that a person is described as meek to to connect that, you may have heard me say it before, I'll say it again, but to connect that with weak in our minds, maybe even effeminate, someone who is being pushed around or cowardly. However, as we consider what our Lord Jesus speaks to regarding meekness, we find that view to be quite wrong. Meekness is true spirit-wrought humility and gentleness. Meekness is on display in godly patience that does good while waiting on the Lord for vindication and blessing. In Psalm 25, verse 9, God teaches us that the meek are those that not only uh, are approachable, but are also teachable. And if you consider the context here and what's happening here in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, it is so applicable in that regard, is it not? For this was the message that the disciples needed to hear as they were being taught by their Savior. And this meekness, by the work of the Spirit, was such in that they would listen. They would be taught. Those who are meek are willing to learn from others. Psalm 25 verse 9 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Again, we see divine instruction. So this glorious blessing that we see Jesus point to in this beatitude Is Jesus, the great teacher, teaching the humble and teachable in his kingdom, about his kingdom, and in his way? And what does he promise to them? For they shall inherit the earth. And what does that mean? I think Calvin says it well. For the children of God, on the other hand, he says, I answer, that though they may not plant their foot on what is their own, they enjoy a quiet residence on the earth. And this is no imaginary possession, for they know that the earth which they inhabit has been granted to them by God. And besides, the hand of God is interposed to protect them against the violence and fury of wicked men. Though exposed to every species of attack, subject to the malice of wicked men, surrounded by all kinds of danger, they are safe under the divine protection." They have already a foretaste, at least, of this grace of God, and that is enough for them till they enter, at the last day, into the possession of the inheritance of the world. Beloved, Jesus here is pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But he also goes on in verse 6, to bring up the fourth beatitude and the final that we'll consider this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. As we well know, hunger and thirst are common daily experiences for us. When we are hungry and thirsty, what do we do? We we may put up with it for a period of time, but there's a time and a desire when we want that to be gone. We don't want to be uncomfortable for too long. What we're hungry for, we're focused on. We want to be satisfied. We want to be full. And so our Lord Jesus here puts a spiritual spotlight yet again on having a spiritual appetite for righteousness. Do you have such an appetite? What should our hunger and thirst look like? And further, what is Jesus talking about here? My friends, God's blessing is upon those who don't seek their own righteousness, but have a strong desire for His. God's blessing is upon those who have a strong desire to be forgiven, to be right with God, and to live in a manner that's well-pleasing to Him. Consider the prophecy of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 verses 71 to 75 regarding God's promise to, quote, perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. That is the great view here. And indeed, this is the blessing granted. We will be filled, Jesus says. We will be satisfied with the holiness that God gives. So, beloved, as we consider these Beatitudes in this beginning portion of the Sermon of the Mouth this morning, I encourage you to praise God that Christ and His kingdom has come. Praise Him for His gift of repentance unto life that sinners would be brought from death to new life in Christ and as recipients of His grace made citizens of His kingdom. What a wonderful King He is in this regard and every other. And what a wonderful kingdom He has. He brings dreadful judgment to those who do not belong to King Jesus, but grants, oh, so abundant and blessed life to those who do. Be thankful this morning for this lesson that that Jesus provides you of, of blessed life in the kingdom, how truly blessed you are if you are in Christ. Consider that and take that home with you today. See and know here how that is true in the details. Like his disciples were, how truly blessed you are to sit at the feet of Jesus this morning and be taught of his blessing and kingdom benefits. Listen to and learn from him here, beloved. May you have much joy and comfort this morning as you hear and read his words of his love and care for you. You have been set apart and are are highly favored by the living God. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter about what the world believes in any other regard. This is the truth. This is the gospel message and the fruit of the gospel in your lives that we see in these Beatitudes a wonderful testimony of grace. As you have been set apart by God who calls you to know who you are and to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, all the days of your life. And so therefore, indeed, walk in the ways that that show that you are a child of the King. May we all have spirit-wrought humility And zeal to be faithful in doing so. Amen. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray together. Oh, our great God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people who are joyful to be taught by you in this wonderful sermon in Scripture. Oh, Father, we do pray for your Spirit's work in us that we would see all the more clearly your work, your blessings, your benefits to us as your people. And that we would have an expanded kingdom knowledge. And that we would have a deepened relationship and adoration and love for you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name.